0: Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and Father, we pray tonight that you would bless the study of your word, and God, we pray that you would reveal your son to us. We have come to meet him tonight. God, we've come asking humbly that you would give us eyes to see, God, that there would be a, just a fresh Deeper revelation. God, the the cross is worth so much. And God, the the cross is so razor sharp. We pray tonight that the, the sharpness of what's declared about you and what's declared about us would not be lost. God, would not be lost. We've not come tonight to jump through some religious hoop. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would not just fill this place, but that he would fill our lives, lead us to the Son, Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us tonight. Transform us. God, change us. Don't leave us. Don't let us leave the same as when we came in. And so we give this time to you, and you have our full attention. You have our full attention. We've come undistracted. And so settle our hearts, God, that we would receive tonight in Jesus' name. Well, the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let me read that again. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It's interesting if you read this in the original language in the Greek and maybe some of your Bible translations have it laid out like this, but in the Greek, each of these phrases are presented uh, in the, the way the Psalms are. So the reality is this was a hymn of the early church all the way down to verse 11. Uh, it's called a poetic narrative. And so the way that it was written was there were phrases like in a poem, short phrases that you would read, but the church knew this and sang this together as a hymn, and it's in fact considered to be Paul's master story. This may be one of the most deeply theological portions of Scripture in all of the Bible. And and really, I think that the theologians who believe this to be Paul's master story, I believe that they believe that because this was the epicenter, this This story was the epicenter of the Apostle Paul's life. It was the epicenter of his preaching. It was the epicenter of his apostolic ministry. Listen, I'm saying to you that everything about the Apostle Paul came back to what we just read together. It was the epicenter of his life, and rightly so, because the cross is the center of human history. I don't know if you realize that tonight. You know, there are many... Magnificent moments in human history, but none of them, none of them compare to the moment when God Himself was crucified for us. In fact, the cross is the ultimate revelation of the triune Godhead. I'm saying to you tonight that if you want to understand God, if you really want to understand God, you need to look to the crucified Christ. That's where your eyes should set, that's where your heart should ponder, that's where your thoughts should meditate and and mull over because all that can be known about God, to the extent that we're able to know him, is known most greatly through the cross. Now listen, of course, when we talk about the cross and we talk about knowing God, fundamentally we talk about having access to God because how can you know God unless you have access to God? God. And the only way to have access to God is through faith in the sacrifice of his son. And so, yes, absolutely, of course. When I say to you tonight that to really understand God, you have to look to the crucified Christ. Of course, I mean. Of course, I mean. That first of all, you have to have access. And you can't understand God unless you have access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is impossible for the natural man to understand the things of the Spirit because the Bible says they are spiritually discerned. None of us have the innate capacity. Listen, tonight, if you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, and and, and yet you fashion yourself as someone who really knows God, I'm saying to you today that the Bible says that's just simply not possible. It's simply not possible. To have access to God uh, to the extent where you're able to understand him begins fundamentally with the first step, and that's trust and faith in his son. To understand, to have the capacity to understand. Why, because just as I said, the things of God are spiritually discerned. God, God, through the Holy Spirit, takes those things about God and conveys them to us. Every time we open the scripture, we're looking not for man to teach us, but we're looking for the Holy Spirit to teach us because the Holy Spirit is our teacher. But I'm saying to you something more than that. What I'm saying to you tonight is that the cross is the greatest display of who God is. I'm not just saying to you tonight that that is it's through the cross that you have access. Yes, that's true. I'm not just saying to you tonight that it's through the cross that you have the capacity. Yes, that's true. But I'm saying to you tonight that if you really want to, to know as much as you can about God, if you wanna find a place where God is on greatest display, you say, well, wait a minute, what about, what about the incarnation? What about his perfect life? What about the resurrection? I'm not diminishing, I'm not diminishing any of those things. But if we were to place them in order and set at the pinnacle the greatest thing, the greatest demonstration, the greatest picture, the greatest display of who God is, it would, without a doubt, be the cross of Christ. Now listen, this is such a powerful portion of Scripture because Paul is expressing a radical miracle that is absolutely otherworldly. It's otherworldly. Everything that happens in this this master story that paul is conveying and listen i say paul's master story but really it's the master's story it is the master's story everything about this story is absolutely otherworldly because the way that it rolls is not the way that we would expect it to roll and he paul expresses and of course listen this is not paul paul is not coming up with these ideas he's just expressing the truth of the gospel he, he starts with, it, it is an absolute almighty contrast here, and he starts at the highest pinnacle that you could possibly begin at. He starts with saying, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, here it is, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So where does, in, in this master story, in the master story, where does Paul begin? Well, he begins with this amazing reality that Jesus is not just any other human being, that he's not just, and I say this so often, but I did, uh, it's just habit, and so that's just the way it is. He's not just a rabbi or a run-of-the-mill prophet. Um, he's not just some good moral example to follow. He's not a god in the the pantheon of gods no he is god himself that's the starting point here look and 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 you have to start there because the path that is traced out by the apostle paul is not a path that that we would expect god to take Where does he begin? He says, well, being in the form of God. Now, maybe um, if you had uh, light to read by as you were reading your Bible, maybe you would read uh, something like this. Although, although being in the form of God, and that's conveyed in the original language, right? Because there's a great contrast that's going to be drawn. Although being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped at, to be equal with God. In other words, in the declaration that Jesus is God we're not taking anything away from God because Jesus is in fact God it's not grasping at the air and not holding on to something substantial or significant because when you say that he is the fact is he is Jesus is in all ways and in all things absolutely divine he is he is absolute 100% deity And this is conveyed in so many different ways in not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. In fact, the author to the book of Hebrews was just conveying that God in various ways in times past had revealed himself through the the prophets. And then he goes on to say, but in these last days, he's revealed himself to us through his own precious son. And then he says this, who being in the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Look, only God can do that. Only God can do that. The author to this book is saying, listen, if you want to really see God, what you need to do is you need to look at Jesus. Just as Jesus had said to Philip, it's that phone. Just as Jesus said to Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Everything that was made was made through him, and nothing that was made was made without him. That's the way John conveys it in his gospel account. And so listen, we start at this amazing pinnacle. We start as high as you possibly can, can get And then all of a sudden, in light of all of that, he does the unthinkable. The Bible says in verse seven, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Listen, what did he do? Well, he did, like I said, he did the unthinkable. He made himself of no reputation. He did something that no one would have expected. I know tonight, I know tonight from hindsight, you're so used to the story, of course you expect it because you're familiar with it, but think about it as if you're hearing it for the very first time. You're hearing something that God does. You're hearing something that God does that is unlike any other potentate, any other king, any other person in a position of authority. What does he do? What is it that God does? God the Son, God incarnate he empties himself he makes himself of no reputation the greek word is kenosis this does not mean that jesus ceased being god at his incarnation it does not mean that jesus divested himself of of divine attributes in his incarnation it means that he chose total self-abandonment in self-giving humility it means when the Bible says he made himself of no reputation, the Greek word, like I said, kenosis, it means he chose of his own volition, of his own accord. This is the, according to the counsel of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in absolute alignment, a reflection of who they all are. Hey, listen, never, never frame Jesus in a way uh, as if he is absolutely different from the Father. You know the Father, he's full of wrath, he's the righteous God. He he is the one who, he doesn't let anything get by. He's ready to judge sin. And then on the other hand, you have merciful Jesus who walks in humility. No, no. That's not the way the triune Godhead works. Everything that we're going to see tonight is an expression of not only the Son, but it is an expression of the triune Godhead through the Son. What did he do? He chose He chose total self-abandonment and self-giving humility. He picked the opposite direction of what we would expect. He picked the opposite direction of what we would expect. And this is the way that Paul phrases it. Even though he was God, he could have exploited that. Like we are so familiar with people who are in positions of power doing. Because that's what people do with power. They exploit it. They're never looking for the low road. They're never taking the path that's humble. They're they're always leveraging their authority and their power so that they can get more, so they can be more glorified, so they can sit higher than everybody else. Like Paul's presenting this in a way to the Roman mind where no doubt you would be thinking of great contrast. You'd be thinking of Jesus and the Roman emperor and how totally different those two uses of power and authority are. Although he was in the form of God, he did something we could have never expected. He had, he unlike earthly rulers, had every right to exploit that position. He had every right to stay in that position of power and authority. He had every right to stay seated on the throne and receiving the adulation of the angels of heaven as the seraphim circled the throne of God singing holy, holy, holy. He could have chose that route and it would have been the right route for him to choose. Because he, in fact, is God. And he deserves that adulation and that honor and that glory. That's the theology of the glory of God that we'll talk about another time. But he didn't, he didn't choose that path. What did he do? He chose a path of self-abandonment in self-giving humility. Instead of selfishness, he chose selflessness. God. I mean, think about that tonight. God, the ruler of God the universe instead of thinking about himself he thought of us and by the way this wasn't a passing moment of obedience where jesus in taking this path in choosing this road that is an otherworldly road with respect to authority and power that we would not even choose ourselves we would not choose this road for ourselves Sometimes we frame it like, well, you know, he did that. It was, a, it, was, it was just for a moment, right? I mean, he did something he didn't want to do. He did something he didn't want to do. He did something that wasn't really a full expression of who he is. And I would say to you, no, this is, in fact, a revelation of his nature. This wasn't a passing moment. This expression of humility wasn't Jesus something that was due wasn't something Jesus was doing that was outside of the character and the nature of God. No, it's the exact opposite. And this is what is so unfathomable for us. Like I said, it's so unnatural to us. What did he do? He chose a path of humility because God himself is humble. This is what God does because this is who God is. God is humble. Man, have you... Have you thought about the implication of that? Have you framed that as one of the characteristics and attributes of God that you love so much? Have you placed this moment in the the life of Christ, this this moment of humility as something outside of the character and nature of God that he did for just a, a moment? Or have you thought about it in the context of this, that this is one of those immutable qualities of God that he has had for all of eternity. This is what what Paul does. Paul takes us down this path, right? God could have chose Jesus, God could have chose this road, but he chose this road. And and now listen, it's not just a a linear path, it is a path that descends. When we think about the humility of Jesus, what does that mean? Well, in self-giving humility, what did he do? He took the form of a bondservant. This is what Paul says, he's like, okay, hey, if we're gonna walk down this road and really think about what he did, then let's consider it for what it is. He, he, took, he took a step away from the glory and the grandeur and the adulation, but it was a step down. And he does it out of chronology here. And I'm a linear person, I like chronology, and honestly, for me, I would have put the incarnation before the form of a bondservant, and Paul does it for a reason, he's inspired by the Spirit of God, and maybe someday God will tell me why. Right now, I just don't know. But the first thing he says, and maybe it's, it's because it's such a, a beautiful contrast in our mind, but totally natural for God, he took the form of a, of, of a bondservant. God who should be served is a God who served. Man, God who should be served is a God who served. Now listen, if you're reading this in the original language, you get exactly what Paul is saying because because Paul says in Greek, morphe theos, morphe doulos. Morphe theos, form of God. Morphe doulos, form of a bondservant. And he presents it just like that in, in the phrasing so that we understand from our minds such a total contrast. Because again for us, the more authority, the more power that you have and that you accumulate to yourself, the more people that serve you And this was exactly what Jesus told his disciples during the Passion Week as they argued, as they argued over who was gonna be the greatest. And he's like, listen, that's the way that it is with the rulers of this world, but it's not gonna be like that for you. because, Because you reflect me, and that's not the way I am. And if that's not the way I am, then that's not the way you're going to be. Form of God, form of a servant, God served. Listen, he said these words himself, Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And again, listen, I think in the chronology of his life, we take this and we place this as just one of those things. It was like a blip on the map, and he did it for a moment, but that's not the case. It was a full expression of his, of his nature, who he is. He is God, and he is a servant, He served in the incarnation. He served when he healed the sick. He served when he fed the hungry. He served when he washed the feet of his disciples. He served when he forgave people their sins. He served as he lived in an immaculately perfect life, a sinless life. All of that was him serving. He served when he laid his life down as a sacrifice. Do you know Jesus tonight? I'm curious, do you? Say yes if you do. Yeah? You have a relationship with him tonight? You've forgiven of your sins? You've filled with the Holy Spirit? You have a heart that's been healed? You know what? He's served you. He has served you in that? I mean, how mind-blowing is that? He has served you. Who are we that God would serve us and yet it is the character and the nature of God. Look, a topic for another time, but if you want to be like Jesus, serve other people. Stop seeking to be served, and be like your master, and serve others. He, in self-giving humility, took the form of a bondservant, And, and listen, not only that, but he came in the likeness of men. He came in the likeness of men. He joined his divine nature to a human nature. He joined his divine nature to, a, to his human nature in the incarnation. Look, when Jesus was incarnate, it didn't take anything away from his divinity or his deity. These two natures exist simultaneously. But I want you to think about this because I just told you from John's Gospel that nothing that was made was made without him and everything that was made was made with him and yet the creator became part of his creation. Man, how mind-blowing is that? Paul is taking us, taking us deep into the humility of Jesus Christ. How humble is he? How much did he, did he abandon himself and what he could have had rightly as God incarnate? Well, listen, he is a servant. He took the form of a bondservant and he added to his divine nature human nature. The creator became part of his creation. This is the great condescension. Like, this is the great condescension. Who can ever map this out? You know, how could you ever quantify this in numerical terms, sitting on the the throne because you're God, like I said, and, and having the seraphim circling around, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty outside of the known universe, and yet transcending all of it simultaneously. And then what happens? you 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 as the son of god by the spirit of god are placed within the womb of a teenage girl the virgin womb of a teenage girl and you take upon a human nature and you number yourself with the transgressors you as the creator of all things become part of your creation and I know that while we have this amazing self-elevated view of humanity in the in in the, in the physicality physicality and in the intellect and in the soulfulness, and we have such a high view of ourselves, listen, nothing could have been a greater condescension for him, and yet he did it. He did it in a way where where we're able to say we're able to call him Emmanuel. That is to say, God with us. Like, what in the world? Does that blow your mind tonight? God with us. Doesn't that astound you? Doesn't that amaze you? Isn't that shocking to you? Hey, maybe you're so familiar with, with these theological principles that, that the fact is this is a well-trodden path for you and the sharpness of it's just frankly been lost. And, and that, that is why it's so important for us to have times every year where we, where we think deeply about these things. Like this is not just a Good Friday service in the sense of, well, I go to church every Good Friday and so, you know, I'm gonna roll in and, and you know pay my respects pay my respects to the lord no we're doing something different here we're we're asking god to give us a deeper revelation we want to know him more we we the fact is this some of us need the soil some of us need the soil of our heart to be retilled retilled Listen, because we go through the motions, and it's a well-trodden ground, but, you know, the the freshness, the power of it has been lost on us. It's been lost on us. And we can talk about things, and we can say things like, Emmanuel, and yet, listen, the the bomb doesn't go off anymore in our hearts. The bomb doesn't explode. Our mind isn't blown. You know, we think, well, yeah, I heard that story before, familiar with it. Of course, thankful for it. But you know, we we don't have that same sense of being shaken to the core. God help us. Listen, God help us to be in a place where these things are just not commonplace. And, And the truth is, it seems to me that for the Apostle Paul, they weren't commonplace. The further down in the humility that he goes, the more astounding the picture of Christ is What did he do? He came in the likeness of men. This is the mystery of the hypostatic union. Two natures, a finite and an infinite nature contained within the same person. Man, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. The transfiguration was such a beautiful glimpse, right? Such a beautiful glimpse on on that mountain, Peter, James, and John, the voice of God, speaking from the cloud. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye, him. Hear ye not that phone. You're going to shut that off right now is what you're going to do. <laughs> Hear ye him. Hear ye him. Wait a minute. We've got Elijah and we've got Moses. They're nice guys, but they're nothing compared to Jesus. Right, hear ye him. And then what happens? And then what happens, his glory is on display. His glory is on display. Peter says it like this, and the gospel accounts convey it as well, that he was shining so brightly, it was a white that was whiter than any white he'd ever seen. Like, you can't clean clothes that white. That's in the original language, you check it out yourself. You can't clean clothes that white. Right? And, and, and all of that was simply an expression of his divinity, his deity. And so you have that beautiful moment where they see the, the hypostatic union, the humanity of Christ and his deity. But listen, I just want to say, that's nothing compared to the cross. That is nothing compared to the cross, to the crucified God. To the one who hung on the cross for you and for me. And, and this is what Paul does. He says, man, we're going to follow this path that's going to take us down. Self-giving humility, form of a bondservant, likeness of men. But then he goes on to say, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even, right? Bondservant, human being, willing to die, willing to die, who would, be, who would be in that position, in that place, with that power, and yet be willing to die as a sacrifice? And, and Paul goes on to say, listen, not, not just that, but even, even the death of the cross. And, and why was this so big in the mind of the, the apostle? Because this is what Jesus did. He, he died as a m- malefactor. He died as as someone worse than a common criminal, the perfect son of God. He died a death that expressed a death of someone who would have been cursed. It was the most ignominious way that a person could die. From the Jewish perspective, when someone was hanging on a tree, it meant they were rejected by the people. That was reserved for someone who was cursed among the people of God by the God of the law, that reflected somebody who had been totally without exception, excluded from the covenant of life. Jesus was taken outside of the city walls and he was crucified. Taken outside of the city walls as an expression, this was the way it worked, of saying, you're not one of us, you're not, you're not worth, you're not worth being among the number. You've been cast out you've been rejected, we consider you to be cursed. And and not just outside of the city walls, but he hung on a tree. Paul said this in Galatians 3, 14, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And have you thought about that lately? Have you thought about that lately? You can say thank you, Lord, right now for that. That would be appropriate, just to say thank you to him. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written back in the Torah, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And what did he do? What did he do for you? What, did he, what was he willing to do? What path was he willing to take? How low was he willing to go? Even in the Roman mind, the most degrading form of punishment was crucifixion. The the, the greatest way that you could shame a person or embarrass a person was to crucify them. In fact, the Roman people considered crucifixion to be so degrading that they wouldn't even mention the cross in civilized company. You just wouldn't talk about it. You just wouldn't talk about it. The conversation wouldn't go there because it was beneath your dignity to talk about the cross. And yet that's exactly what he did for us. He went to the cross for you, he went to the cross for me, he went to the cross for the world. Listen, the day that he was slaughtered, the day that he was slaughtered was the day of Passover. It was a day of butchery. It was a day where the lambs were brought to the Temple Mount and they were slaughtered. I will tell you on that day, the blood was flowing. The blood was flowing from the Temple Mount as those sacrifices were were brought to the priests on behalf of the people. And there were channels that were designated for all of that blood to flow. And yet there was one. There was one taken outside of the city. There was one who had been abused by Pilate and his soldiers and Herod and his soldiers. Caiaphas and the temple guard one who had been beaten beyond recognition, one whose beard had been plucked out, one who had been covered with a a sheet and slapped and hit in the face as he had been covered with the spit of men, being considered so unworthy that those who considered themselves religious leaders and in the know concerning God just spat on him, just spat on him. He was willing to be scourged. His arms stretched out and tied to a wooden stake as the torturers flayed the flesh from his upper body to the extent where raw muscle was exposed. He was mocked and jeered, placed in a gorgeous robe with a staff in his hand, a crown of thorns, Set on his head, that staff torn away, and then they used it to beat the crown of thorns down upon his head. As the people cried out, as the people cried out, crucify him, crucify him, his blood be upon us and our children. And then they strapped that crossbeam, a 100 pound piece of wood, to his shoulders. After enduring all that he had endured, a sleepless night, the pressure and the weight so heavily upon him, spiritually, soulfully, and and physically, that the capillaries in his body burst and blood came out of his skin. After all of the beating, making his way most likely through the Damascus gate, he broke under the weight of that patibulum. And they grabbed Simon from Libya. Simon from Libya, out of the crowd. Maybe, maybe he was a disciple. He later became a disciple. We know that that's true. And his sons became worshipers of Christ. Look, how could you not after that? Maybe he was just there celebrating the feast of Passover and watching as this entourage was following this man who'd been beaten beyond Anything he'd ever seen before. How can a man endure something like that and still be on his feet? Almost as if he'd been divinely purposed for this moment. And then that moment happened. Jesus broke under the weight. They pulled Simon out. And most likely they carried that patibulum together. To the place of execution. Right outside of the Damascus Gate, not set up on a hill, but right there on the road, so that those who were walking by could look eye to eye with those who were being crucified. And they took his arms, and they stretched his arms out as a lamb was led to the slaughter, yet he opened not his mouth, as if it was the moment he'd been made for, while two were crucified, one on the right and one on the left, no doubt, crying and begging for mercy, and yet this man, with arms stretched out, took those nails with purpose, and he took those nails with love, love for you and love for me. And they put him up on the cross, they erected the cross, and the religious leaders mocked him and he spoke from the cross and his very first words were, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. While the lambs had been slain on the temple mount, the lamb of God was being slain for the sin of the world. That's, that's the path he took for, for us and for humanity. That was the road he was willing to walk. Not a momentary expression of qualities or attributes or characteristics that were foreign to him, but a full expression of who God is. God the servant. God the one who was willing to self-abandon the glory and the adulation that he rightly deserves in self-giving humility, being sacrificed on a cross to reconcile to reconcile wayward lost sinners who are born with the heart to reject God and push him away to 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 be willing to die for that knowing that innately when we're born we want nothing to do with him and yet he loved us he's loved us so much he's good he is good We're gonna have a time of communion now and a time of worship, and the way that we're gonna have this time of communion is there is, next to your seat, a little holding uh, thing for the communion elements. So you've got communion elements right there. Uh, They have two seals on either side. There's the bread, there's the cup. The worship team's gonna come up right now. Lead us in some songs. And then we're going to have uh, a few more words about the cross. Um, we want to encourage you. We're not going to, we're not going to take communion at the same time. We really just want you to have a moment to to reflect, a moment to just, just ponder, and let the Spirit of God lead you in this time of communion. And and um, as I would encourage you to to take it during that first worship song, and uh, then we'll get back into the Word. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for your son and we're thankful for how deeply you love us and we really we have just such a a limited understanding god what it's just a drop in the bucket that's all it is but god fill our bucket with more drops god fill us with a deeper understanding we want to thank you for the communion that we have with you the unity that we have and just in saying that tonight i I want to encourage you, taking communion is something that is uh, something that's reserved for the people of God. If you've not put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, I would wait to take communion until you take that step of faith. Father, we're thankful. God, we're thankful. I pray that you'd meet us here in just a very special and rich way as we have communion with you and as we enjoy our unity with one another sometimes in the past i've done seven statements from the cross and and i just want to say seven things about the crucified god to you tonight as we've considered philippians chapter 2 i want to remind you for sure that the picture of the cross is brutal it's raw it's intended by God to shock us. It's razor sharp. And the cross cuts so that God can, can heal us. Don't sugarcoat the cross. Don't soft pedal its message. And don't blunt its edge. The crucified God is a shocking declaration of God's truth, God's reality, and God's nature. When you consider the cross, it demands that we deal with the reality that God is this holy, that sin is this evil, that the solution had to be this drastic, and that God is an all-loving God, and that His love can't be measured. It's immeasurable. The cross declares that the the love of God is immeasurable. The crucified God awakens us from the anesthetic of human society, and by that I simply mean the mantra of human thinking is self-affirmation. You know, we say to ourselves, we're good enough. Listen, maybe there's some minor adjustments. Maybe there are some things we need to fix. Maybe there are some cosmetic changes that we need to make. And we live in this unending tower of Babel from generation to generation that says we can ascend to the heavens. We can make a name for ourselves, but the cross once and for all destroys that philosophy because you can't and you aren't. And I can't and I'm not. And we collectively can't because we aren't and we will never be good enough on our own to ascend into the heavens And we would never want to live in a way where we would make a name for ourselves instead of honoring the name that is above all names. The name that is greater than every name. The crucified God does not unite us to ourselves or society. It places us in contradiction to it. The crucified God promises the pain of repentance and fundamental change. When you look at the cross, you're looking at a Crossroad, the cross demands a decision. And there's not multiple ways to go, there's only two ways to go. Before you is God. And when you think of the cross, the two options are you either move forward with God or you turn your back on him. There's no right, there's no left, there's either forward or there is away. You're either for him or you're against him. You're either a friend of God or you are at war with God. That's why the cross is God's cry to humanity. And I think it's the same cry that he pleaded with the people of Israel with through Ezekiel the prophet. As he said through the prophet, as I say, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways and live. That's what the cross says. The cross is beckoning you to come and to discover real life and a choice is set before you and it's up for you, it's up to you to decide tonight to either move forward with God or to turn your back on him. The crucified God makes a scandal of the religious person. It confronts us with the present reality of faith in God. Listen, what does God want? What does God want? Does he want a religious trinket from you? Does he want you to jump through some religious hoop? Is he looking for us to establish some, some measure of, of morality so that we can put ourselves on some sliding scale or bell curve and have this view of ourselves where we've placed ourselves in this, in this s- sliding scale and somehow we can feel better about ourselves because we've modified our, our morality as if what God is looking for is moral reform? No, that's not the message of the cross. That's not not what God expects from us or God wants from us. Is it some religious system to follow? He wasn't crucified between two candles. He was crucified between two thieves. God is not calling you to some religious relationship with him where you think that just because you sit in a holy place that somehow it makes you holy. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified between the outcasts. He was outcast himself so that he could pull the outcast to himself. I am an outcast that that Jesus has received freely and graciously and lovingly. The crucified God makes a scandal of the religious person. The crucified God tells us that we don't make the crucified God appealing to the world so that our path is free from the shame of the cross. We're not trying to modify him. We're not trying to soften the blow. We're not trying to shape him so that he's more relevant in a way because the reality is, it's not just a matter of building a bridge to the lost. We don't want to identify with that level of shame. And the crucified God calls us to total self-abandonment and to live a life of faith in him because these were his words. Deny yourself. If you want to come after me, if you want to come after me, Don't despise the shame of the cross. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me is what he said. The crucified God tells us that though man is indifferent to God, God is not indifferent to man. I mean, how beautiful is that? Born compelled naturally to resist God and to reject God without the knowledge of God because there are none who are righteous, no, not one, there are none who seek after him. And yet, and yet in spite of that, in spite of knowing that you would be born with a nature and you would live to it where your fist would be raised to God and there would be times where you would say, God, not only do I not like you, I don't want you. I don't want you in my life. And yet what does he do? He plants himself on the tree, And he numbers himself, like I said, with the transgressors. And he conveys that even in our own indifference and rebellion, he is not indifferent to us. In spite of humanity's rejection, we discover a God who loves us obsessively and and calls us just as we are. He calls us to come. I mean, it's, it's no mistake that his arms were outstretched wide on that cross emblematic of his willingness to receive all who would come to him in faith a declaration to all of humanity that everyone can come just as they are tonight you might be thinking you know well that's not the way it's rolled for me pastor god doesn't really care about me really really Listen, I don't know how the circumstances of your life have have rolled out and how you use those as variables in determining with your own personal equation whether or not God loves you. Stop looking at that and start looking at this. Start looking at the cross. Stop listening to the lies of the devil. Stop listening to the message of the world that will always push you away from the love of God. You don't have to question the love of God because it's been... Displayed once and for all through the sacrifice of his son. God. If God loves you this much, why would he ever turn you away? Sometimes, you know, there's this sense of guilt and shame that weighs so heavy upon us. And we know that God is a holy God. And yes, he loves us, but we allow. We allow that burden of guilt and shame to keep us from God instead of bringing it to him and being freed from it having the power of the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse us from it and forgive us of it, the very thing that is able to rescue you and deliver you is the very thing that you're turning away from. Tonight, you need to, you need to look to the crucified God whose arms are stretched out wide right now to receive you just as you are. Look, I don't care how sinful you are. I don't care how wicked your life has been. I don't care what this culture thinks of you or how they've framed you. What I do know is that God loves you. And tonight if you're willing, tonight if you're willing, tonight if you'll humble yourself, tonight if you'll say yes to the love of God, he will receive you and make you his son or daughter right in this place, right here and right now. The crucified God finally tonight compels us into the, into the contradiction that what is ugly, despised, and rejected is to be loved and adored. I love that, don't you? What, what, what is ugly, despised, and rejected is to be loved and adored. Disfigured, scourged, beard plucked, crown of thorns beat down upon his head, stripped naked bare, hanging on a cross and we love him we adore him we treasure him we've been brought into this this amazing contradiction because the world would say how could you ever love that but in it we see and experience the character and the nature of god and it magnetizes it magnetizes us to him listen your experience of the cross is not a one and done It is a lifelong experience, and it is magnetic. The love of God is magnetic through the sacrifice of His Son, and it should compel you to come back time and time again. Yes, every day, every day. God, we should be crying, keep me close to the cross. Keep my heart humble and my knee bent. God, tether me to the cross because I know there's the tendency within my own heart to lead me away from that great display of love. And so, Lord, tether my heart to the love of your Son. Keep the cross ever before my eyes. God, when I begin to question, God, when I begin to doubt, God, when I begin to drift, God, when I begin to lean into even denying, pull me back, cause the tether, the chain to be short, God, because I don't want my heart to drift far from you. Keep me close to the cross. Listen, maybe tonight as a Christian, you have truly been drifting in your communion, in your relationship, in your intimacy, away from God. You've been drifting away and you're like, trying to find your way back and you're like, you just don't know how to get there, and I say to you, go to the cross. Go to the cross. You might be a prodigal tonight, and you know you've taken the blessings of God and you've used them for your own self and self-gratification and the fulfillment of the flesh, and you know your burden because because. God has spoken to you, you've come to your senses like that prodigal son had, and you see how far you've drifted from God, and you think, how can I get back to that place? How could I ever make my way back, and would God ever love me? And let me say to you, there's one step back, go back to the cross. Go back to the most beautiful description and definition and display of love that God has ever shown to humanity. Tether yourself to that place, and because Because in that place, he will wash you and cleanse you. He'll robe you up and he'll set his signet upon your hand. This is the theology of the cross. It is the manifestation of the glory of God. It's the manifestation of the glory of God. When I say the glory of God, I mean that the manifest perfections of God are on display through the cross. You want to know God? You wanna see how gracious he is, how all-merciful he is, how righteous he is, how just he is, how omnipotent he is, how wise he is, how good he is, how loving he is, look to the crucified God. Look to the cross. Consider the path that he was willing to take, although being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Yet he made himself of no reputation. And he came in the form of a bondservant, taking upon himself the likeness of men, being obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Let's pray together tonight. And we're thankful, oh God, we're thankful, we're in awe. We're overwhelmed, words can't convey could never express, and yet we do the best we can with what we have. Tonight, maybe you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. The truth is this, you're present tonight, and, and, and I don't know your past. I don't know your background. I don't know what your life is like right now. For some of you, listen, it is, it is wickedness and evil and sin, And you've come searching, you've come seeking, you've come hoping that there is a way to God. And I wanna tell you, I've got good news for you, there is. It is through the cross of his son. And this is the message of the gospel. The gospel simply means good news, it's good news. God loves you and he beckons you to come to him. God's not asking you to clean your life up God's not asking you to make some cosmetic changes. God is not a religious God that that is so shallow that he would want some religious trinket or he'd give you some religious hoop to jump through. God's not that shallow. God loves you. And God wants an eternal relationship with you. God wants you to know him. And God wants you to experience real purpose and satisfaction, tonight you can come just as you are with all of it, with all the stuff. Tonight, maybe maybe you're a, a religious person and, and you know you have religious things that you do. It's, it's, they're almost like boxes that you check and, and you've had this perception of God that if you just did these things, it's really what God wants. And I wanna tell you, the crucified God blows that idea away out of the water, there's no room, there's no place or space for that type of thinking. If that was the case, he would have never had to die in the first place. If you could do it, if you could be religious enough, then why would Christ have ever had to die? No, the the truth is this, the truth is that you need him. And all of those religious efforts have amounted to nothing. You need to trust in what He has done for you. Tonight, you need to take a step of faith. There's a crossroads that's set before you tonight. God is before you. And the other way is to turn your back on Him. I want and we want to encourage you to come, to turn. Like God said through the prophet Ezekiel, turn. Turn from your wickedness and unbelief, your sin, and choose life. Tonight, if this is you, I want to pray for you tonight. And It's really dark. I can't see the hands, but I want to encourage you just to raise your hand right now, just to acknowledge that God is moving in your life, and there's a step of faith that you want to take. You stretch your hand up right now. And just acknowledge that. God bless you as you do that. And for those of you who are Christians tonight, maybe maybe there's been a drifting in your life. Maybe there's been a drifting in your life and, and you need to come back to the cross. You've tried to solve the issue. You've tried to fix it. You know, you've, you've, you, you've, you've come to church and... And you're, you're trying to read again, but the truth is this, you're not back where you need to be. You need to come to ground zero. You need to come back to the epicenter, the place where you first met him. You need to come back to your first love. And if this is you tonight, I want you to raise your hand too. God, God is moving in your life. And there's a step of faith for you to take tonight as well. God bless all of you that are being touched by the Lord. I'm gonna lead you in a very simple prayer. You can put your hands down right where you're sitting. Very simple prayer tonight, and I wanna encourage you to just sincerely and honestly make this your prayer to God and believe it as you do, that God is going to do what he has said he's going to do. If he sent his son to the cross, why would he not fulfill every promise that comes with Christ? So tonight, just you just right where you're sitting, you follow me in this prayer. Oh God, thank you for speaking to me. And tonight I'm making a choice. I'm choosing to come. To come to Jesus. To trust in the sacrifice that he made to receive your love through Him, and the forgiveness of my sins, and spiritual life, and healing, and hope, and peace, and joy. Thank you for the cross. Tonight I'm choosing to follow Jesus.